You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, 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 you fine humans. Hopefully today is treating you well because I know it's treating me well because I get to publish an episode of this podcast. This is the 481st episode of this show, which is staggering to think that I have spent at least 481 hours, which I've obviously spent more, on this very podcast and dropping it into all of your ear holes. I am so, so thankful that uh, this thing has led me to this discussion with Kay Yasui from Have Heart, and he also plays in a band called Dark Blue with Walter from Rotting Out and some other uh, mutual friends of the show. But um, Kay is a, a, he's a good dude. <laughs> I just have uh, met him, obviously, in our travels through independent music and hardcore and all that stuff. And uh, many years ago, well, many years ago, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, when they did their reunion shows, I ran into him and I was like, hey, we should, we should chat in the podcast. And he was like, yeah, I'd love to. And then, uh, you know, fast forward two and a half years later, we made it happen. <laughs> That's my fault. That's not his fault. But I was, uh, yeah, I was thrilled to have him because I have heart. For those of you that uh, did not exist when the band was uh, doing their thing as far as a, a touring entity was concerned, man, they were so much fun. I mean, obviously, when they did their reunion shows, everybody paid attention to that. It was uh, impossible not to, which was amazing. But um, Half Heart definitely felt like they, uh, you know, they took the torch over from a band like Bane, where it was like, hey, this is this is the new wave of hardcore, as it were. And uh, just really heartfelt, earnest, introspective, everything that I like in my hardcore, that's what they did. And uh, yeah, Kay was an integral part of that. So we get to discuss that with him. You can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com, and you can also interact with uh, the show on the Apple Podcast page. So you follow it, and then you can also leave some reviews. I would really appreciate that. just makes the show legitimate in uh, the algorithm's eyes, which, as we all know, we are always looking to look legitimate in the algorithm's eyes. But uh, joking aside, here is my discussion with Kay, and I will talk to you, of course, at the end of the episode where I will tell you what is happening on the show next week. You know, probably 10, 12, 13, 14 times. Like, definitely saw you guys a lot. But Damn, there's yeah. one show, yeah, there's one show in particular that that stood out for me where, and I can't remember exactly what year this was, but uh, you guys played in um, Whittier, California at a place called the Green Turtle, which is like the back of this like Chinese restaurant. I don't know. It was really weird. They only had shows there for like a year or something. And it was such an interesting show because an afternoon show, if I'm not mistaken, I think you guys may have played Chain in the evening. I could be wrong, but um, I I just found that show so interesting because it was not a quote unquote commonplace venue. People definitely had to like know where to go. I mean, you guys promoted it, obviously, but um, it it felt, uh, you know, so exciting and visceral, everything that you want out of a hardcore show. Um, But I'm sure it kind of 
by the time that you know you guys were in that whatever 2003 2004 range where you know you didn't have to quote unquote worry about no one showing up to the shows but like you felt like most of the shows you were going to play were going to be relatively good and fun um so how was it kind of being able to approach shows with that and I don't mean this in a bad way like level of confidence where you're like oh is anybody going to show up you know <laughs> you know what I'm saying well I actually don't think that's true. Like in okay. Southern, in Southern California, I think we were always guaranteed like a pretty good show in that era, but touring the U S um, and even Europe, there are definitely areas where you could still expect like 15 people, even on like a later tour where we were established and people were into it. We could play like, I don't know, Odessa, Texas, and there'd be 20 people at the show. Um, so there's always that element of not knowing what was going to happen. Like generally, yes, you could be confident in that the shows would be good, but there's always a place like, I don't know, if you're playing like Italy or something like that, oh, there's five people at this show. Um, and anecdotally, um, there was one time we were on tour in China. Um, and in China, this was like 2000. Eight, probably i don't know what it's like now but at the time there really wasn't any sort of scene there there was just like people who liked music um who would come out to shows and there were some hardcore kids but i don't know what their real exposure to you know american hardcore was mm-hmm. um and each show had like a totally different vibe some of them were packed some of them were less than packed but i do remember playing in um Guangzhou, China. Um, the show was completely packed. I think this was with um, King Lai Chi, who is from Hong Kong, and they're kind of like a known Chinese band. So we played in Guangzhou. The show was completely packed. Um, super memorable. Uh, you know, have hard show of that era. And then we took the train into Hong Kong, which is you know a what a more Western city where you would expect people to have been more exposed to, I don't know, U.S. European hardcore. We play the show. The show starts, and there's literally nobody there. <laughs> um, sure. There was like two people there. One of them uh, was going to the same college as me. I didn't know him, but I feel like maybe they came out to the show because of literally because like, oh, there's someone from my college playing this show, and it wasn't necessarily about the band. But that, that was also a super memorable show because there's no one there. And we, I think at that point, we actually had some expectations and we were like, oh, okay, um, this is not, this is not what we're expecting. But it, memorable in a different way. And there's, yeah. there's more stories like that too. No, so it never ended. And no, and that's true. Like, and I appreciate you articulating it like that because I, I do think that, I mean, especially the East coast and West coast, just that notion of having the pockets of, Oh, I know the shows are going to be good there. Cause that's usually, you know, bands from the East coast daydream about traveling to the West coast and vice versa. There's always that idea that there's going to be a pocket of good shows, but yeah, to your point, there's always going to be those where it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, people quote unquote care about us less out here or whatever, but yep. yeah, <laughs> totally just the, the tempered expectations. And I, I don't think any punk or hardcore band really, falls into that notion like oh no matter what no matter where we play we're always going to have just like the best show ever it's like hardwired yep. into you 
Yeah. And I think hardcore can definitely humble you in that there's always that chance of, even if you're, you know, playing to whatever, however many people fit in chain reaction, like 750 in Anaheim, there's always a chance that on the same tour you played somewhere else in the Midwest to five people. So, you know, you can't get too, your ego can't get too inflated because of that. Maybe it's different now, but at the time that's how it was. So. Yeah, true. And and plus like that, especially that era, the idea of, you know, being a quote unquote professional hardcore band was still very, very new. Like no one, it's like the idea of making a living out of it wasn't something that anybody had any conceit or concept of besides like, oh, maybe you can point to like hate breed and poison the well, but like still that was far yeah, off. Exactly. And um, even when your shows are well attended and you're like kind of on top of things, you know that hardcore as uh, as a whole can be very fickle and you can be on top of the world one day and then the next year you play the same festival or something and everybody leaves you for your set, which is something that did happen to us and um, caused us to kind of self-reflect and eventually break up. So things like that can happen. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. Yeah. That, that, that idea of, especially like you said, from a fest perspective, because it it can, it can hit a lot different when all of a sudden it's like, wow, this feels so different than it did. And this was not that long ago that we played this thing. Yeah. One year, one year later can be a huge difference in hardcore. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll pull on a few of those strings a little bit later, but uh, reflecting on you as a person, were you actually born and raised in the Boston area or where did you come up? Oh, so I was actually born in Japan. My my dad's Japanese, my mom's American. Um, so I lived in Japan until I was six, um, went to kindergarten there. Uh, and then in 1991, I moved to America and coincidentally, the place I moved to in America where my grandma was living is Norwalk, Connecticut. So I lived in Norwalk from like 91 to 92, which at that time, as many people know, was like, that's where the anthrax was. And it's kind of was like the Mecca of New York hardcore. Mm -hmm. So I like, I like to think that, you know, I was not, I was like six years old, so I was not going to shows, but um, I like to think that, you know, the, proximity to the spirit of hardcore kind of pushed me in certain directions in the future. Um, so after that moved up to Maine and had like a very white rural country upbringing and I went to high school there and stuff. Um, but there was like a, like a weird hardcore Mecca ish thing happening in Maine, like very small, but, there were bands and there was a scene, which is kind of unbelievable. But that um, is kind of what pushed me to uh, to Boston, New England hardcore generally. Got it, got it. And, and so I, I'm, I'm going to guess like you've got zero memory of Japan. Um, I have some memory, but not much. Um, I remember I had a uh, a pet duck that got its neck bitten by a dog and died. That's a very visceral memory. I don't know oh. how that affects me today, but <laughs> right. no, that well, that's a, that, that stands out. I get that. Yeah, there's like visceral memories like that, but they're completely disjointed and uh, weird. So right, right, um, and and so you know, as you started to acclimate to 
your surroundings in regards to, you know, moving to different cities and different places. You, you've always struck me and granted, this is just a outsider's observation, but like, you've always struck me as a, you know, quiet and introverted person, not, you know, introverted to the, where you can't communicate with other people. Um, cause clearly we're doing that right now. But, um, w- was that kind of always reflective of you as a person or was that something that, um, you were more introverted as you were, you know, younger, what, what was the spectrum you were working with? I think it's like, um, I am an only child and like being half Japanese in Japan is like, you know, in Japan, everybody is Asian, everybody's Japanese. And I live like way out in the countryside. So I was probably like the only non-Asian Asian person around. So definitely always felt like kind of an outsider and then moving to America. Um, actually Norwalk was pretty diverse. So I was like, Oh wow. I went from a place where everybody is kind of the same to a place where everybody's different. Um, so that was kind of a shocking or a culture shock, but then moving to Maine where, uh, it's kind of like ping ponging. It's like, Oh, everybody's white once again. And I'm kind of the outsider again. Um, so I think that kind of plays into the, uh, isolation and the, um, alienation from, I don't know, the greater whole. Um, I think, yeah, being an only child and like kind of bouncing between languages and cultures definitely adds to that introversion. I think, um, I like to joke around that I was like feral until I was college. Like I had like no social skills or ability to talk to people until almost like probably post-college when I entered the real workforce, like even in hardcore, I was like, um, surrounded by weirdos. So it was not like, a, you know, some people are born with the social skills and some people develop them, but yeah, being surrounded by weirdos is not the most conducive thing to, uh, becoming normal. In regards to, you know, you being an only child and like, there is that the modeling of behavior, Yeah, you know, because you don't have any siblings, you are left to either acting like an adult at a very early age or looking at your peers in school and trying to model off their behavior. But then you're just constantly figuring out like where the calibration level is. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, like definitely, I feel like I was just like left alone a lot Mm -hmm. as a lot of people are. Well, and I, I think too, with the, you know, the, the, the two different cultures that you're playing around with, like the intersection of Western and Japanese culture it is so, um, you know, diverse from a, like, you know, Japanese culture is so very service oriented and you are wanting to please people almost at all costs. Whereas America is not that case and not like, you know, nine-year-old you would be able to articulate that, but that's a collision of, you know, different values there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I credit my mom for, uh, cause she's American. She was like, Oh, I don't want, um, Kay to be like in a, in this Japanese school system that kind of like grinds you down and into like a complete, um, I don't know, automaton or something. Um, but yeah, it definitely is, you know, in Japan, it's like you, the nail that sticks up is hammered down and you're kind of like, um, individuality is not celebrated. Um, and just like any sort being any sort of different is like, you're just, you're not like an outcast or something, but it's very, very noticeable. 
Um, and then in America, it's like, you know, individuality is celebrated. So it was definitely a culture clash. I don't know how much that like Japanese culture influenced me from ages zero to six, but I'm sure it did in some way. And then coming to America where it's like, everything's much different. I'm sure there was some kind of, uh, you know, big internal conflict there. Sure. Right. Yeah. Whether or not you're able to describe it, like it still probably existed just in the, you know, like your literal DNA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so you, you know, you jokingly referenced yourself as a, as a feral child. And, you know, as you started to try to probably try on different identities in junior high and high school and stuff like that. Um, and that was all in, in, was it in Portland, Maine? Yeah. Portland area, like 20 minutes outside. Listen, it's getting down to the wire, right? So I am here to solve your problem of holiday shopping. You go to rockabilia.com, you use the promo code 100 words or less, and that gets you 10% off of your order immediately. And they will ship it out to you lickety split where you will be able to buy all of the highest quality officially licensed merch from all of your favorite bands, whether it's getting stuff for your brother or sister, your mom or dad, your aunt or uncle, whoever it is, they will be able to solve that problem for you because they have so much cool band merch and they can ship it out to you. Like I said, fast, as long as you're paying for that shipping, of course, (laughs) but rockabilly.com knows what they're doing. It's all officially licensed above the board stuff. You're not getting any horrific bootlegs that exist out there because let's be honest, a ton of them do. So again, go to rockabilly.com Browse the webpage, find all your favorite merch, and solve all of your gift-giving problems. Use the promo code 100 words or less, 10% off. Thank you very much, Rockabilia. Just kind of knowing that general area, it, it's that collision of rural slash also, you know, you're close to a big city. and I mean, big, and I use that maybe in air quotes. Um, but did, did you kind of feel, I know, like you mentioned, there there was an actual scene there. Did you feel like there was other sort of like cultural touch points that you could kind of like look at? In regards to, oh, now I'm interested in design, even though you probably wouldn't have described it as such. Um, hmm, I don't think so. I think Portland in the 90s was like a complete wasteland of culture and um, anything, really. Um, it was not the most uh, culturally enlightening place to grow up, for sure. Um, I sure. feel very lucky to have found hardcore in some ways. Um, and it's all just dumb luck. I think in Maine, there's these weird pockets of punk and hardcore. Um, and I think it has to do with this music store called Bull Moose, um, which is just like a local record store. There's one in my hometown and there was like a weird hardcore scene there. Um, there's one in this place, Brunswick, which is where like, Chris Linkovich, who um, is in Cruel Hand and Terror, is from like a bunch of kids up there. And then there was another weird pocket in this place called Kingfield, which is like the smallest town you can even imagine. Um, and it's like a ski town. It's like next to this ski resort, Sugarloaf. But that's where like Outbreak was from. Uh, like there were also some like older kids from there, older than Outbreak, that were just into this stuff. And there, I have no idea how anybody got into hardcore there, but right. yeah, there, there's these weird pockets and, um, yeah, I'm lucky to have found it because if I hadn't, um, who knows where I would be. Right. Right. 
And what did you, uh, I guess, care about school? Like, were you, you know, kind of keeping up uh, the grades from that perspective? Or were there other things that were pulling you besides music? Um, I would say that I did okay in school, but I really didn't apply myself. I, like, didn't want to. Um, I, I think it. this can tie back to, like, uh coming from Japan to America where you don't want to stand out in any way. I was like, I do not want to stand out in any way in this school. So I'm, I'm already standing out as like one of the only non-white people in like almost the entire town. I would say that's, that's extreme, but like in definitely in the school, there were like a few non-white kids. Um, so it's like, okay, I do not want to stand out in any way. So I was, you know, not trying at all, but doing okay. Um, and my mom is a educator. So she, I think if she was an educator, I would have been much worse off in school. Right. But, but yeah, there was, I think, um, music really kind of, uh, there was a path in music that I want to follow, which kind of took me off of other stuff. Like I played sports until I kind of discovered music. Um, like I remember, I played baseball until my senior year, but I quit because I wanted to go to shows. And then there was, I also was in the cross country team, but I missed our, um, our final meet because of, uh, back to school jam in Framingham. And, um, <laughs> I remember Hatebreed was playing a secret set or something. So I was like, Oh, there's no way I'm doing my, my cross country meet. I didn't like it anyway. <laughs> right. Dude, I love those specific because I, I think most kids have that experience of like, oh, I failed my biology test because I didn't study the night before because I had to go see Converge or whatever. I just, I yeah. really love those specific instances of yes. memories of <laughs> just like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. That, that was my fork in the road moment. Yeah. There's also a moment where um, I, I think I'd gone to like a couple shows. Um, but not really. And I remember, um, I wasn't allowed to like travel for shows. My mom was pretty strict. Um, but I had older friends, one of them being, um, this guy, Alex, who, uh, he definitely exposed me to a lot of stuff. Um, he ended up being in like drug test, um, other bands like that. But he was from, he went to my high school and he like, at one point kidnapped me basically. Um, and took me to, this was 2000, 2001, maybe he took me to see the Harley and JJ Cro-Mags reunion, um, okay. which was also with soul brains. So basically I saw like, orig- I don't know how original lineup was. I think it was, it was Harley JJ. Um, I can't remember who, who was in that lineup, but then also the soul brains. So I saw cro and bad brains in Massachusetts, like a two hour drive on like a school night. Um, but I was definitely more interested in, uh, I think like Candiria played and like kill switch engage played. And I, I, at that point I didn't even know who Chromax and bad brains were, but I did see them. So that counts. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and plus like, I love it too, where as you were getting into this stuff and, you know, getting abducted to go to shows, like you were, really devoid of context you were just experiencing all of this stuff as this collective of bands that existed outside of the quote-unquote mainstream so it's not like you could really place them besides maybe sounding different yeah i think at that point i was like kind of into it um 
I just didn't have like the historical context. I was into like maybe contemporary bands at the time. It was stuff like Hatebreed, Candiria, Diecast was a big band in New oh, England dude. at that point. How about how about, <laughs> how about the how about the drummer that uh, held the drumsticks with uh, you know jazz style? So sick. Oh yeah, I think you wore fingerless gloves too. If I'm not yeah. mistaken, I can't remember. But <laughs> yeah, I saw them. No, you're right. I saw them quite a bit because they were always playing in Portland. Um, yeah, so I was into contemporary bands, but I, I hadn't like delved backwards at all. I, I think I delved backwards a little bit, but it was like bands from the past five to ten years, which was like, I mean, Sam Black Church, Tree, like kind of these these Boston bands that have been lost to uh, the sands of time. But at, at that time, we're like sort of contemporary, maybe like a little bit past their prime, but those were like the bands in New England. Yeah. Well, I, I also love the regionality of, of so many of those bands because there was something that was so special about, you know, Sam Black Church as an example. They could draw like a thousand people in the Boston, you know, greater New England area, but like, you know, coming out to anywhere else, it'd be like, no, no one's going to go see them. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I don't even really know about. I, I, that makes a lot of sense that if Sam Black Church played in like, LA no one would go but yeah if I think even today if they played like a reunion show in in Cambridge or something there'd be a lot of people there oh totally yeah <laughs> right it's like the the way like E-Town Concrete can play in front of like you know 7,000 people in you know Elizabeth yeah. New Jersey but yeah yeah yep. have, have you talked about on this podcast how the singer of E-Town Concrete is uh Lil Dicky and Tyga's manager I I have not uh, and I was only generally aware of that but that is a spectacular evolution yeah, it's kind of crazy, um, but yeah, but yeah, he's like a very successful music manager. He was he was always the hustler in the band, and obviously the business brains behind it. Um, but now he, you know, he just couldn't make it happen for his own band. So it's cool that he was able to figure it out for other yeah. people. Seriously. <laughs> and so, as you were kind of progressing and starting to put all this stuff in relative context, like you said, your your friend was very influential in you kind of, you know, understanding more bands. What was it that you think that captured your attention initially? Was it just the, you know, the aggression of the music or just kind of the, you know, autonomy of like going to these shows and stuff like that? What, uh, what spoke to you? Yeah, I think it was kind of both. It was definitely the, the aggression of the music, the fact that it was something that it's kind of like a secret society in a way. It's like, people in my school don't know about this. Um, it was something to do, um, somewhere to go. There's a sense of belonging. There's, there's like the identity aspect. Like it, it gives you like the clothes to wear, whether it's like a band t-shirt or at the time I was like, Oh, I'm wearing cargo shorts and like a, um, a Kappa zip up windbreaker or something. It's literally like all that stuff. Like this, this is like something that I can call my own. Um, or, you know, it's like a small group of people who are into it, but it's definitely like a, you know, kind of like secret knowledge type thing. Right. Like the secret society aspect of, yeah. I know something that no one else knows about because of this, you know, like, of course, basketball jerseys are cool. Yeah. And it's something like you can do all the time. It can, when you're a kid like that, it can, 100% be your entire identity. Like everything you do can revolve around it. And that's sure. very compelling at that age. Absolutely. 
And so how did your, um, you know, how'd your parents react to that as you started to, you know, spread your wings a little bit and then obviously bring this really, really weird music home? Um, I never really dressed crazy. So that was fine for them. My dad has like no cultural understanding of anything American. So he, I, I have no idea what he thought. Um, right. my mom, um, she, uh, she lived in New York in the seventies and like, she says that she saw, she used to go to CBGB. Um, this was like, I don't know, mid seventies or something. And she always said she saw the beastie boys. And I was like that, that, uh, timeline doesn't really add up. Um, but then we kind of sat down and like looked at it together and she, she always had this anecdote of seeing the beastie boys and they would, um, chew up baloney and spit on the crowd. And I was like, Oh, that's, I don't think that's them. But then I kind of Googled that act and I think she saw the dead boys. Cause it sounds like the dead boys used to do that. And the, the timeline kind of adds up and it's like the boys type thing. So, so she kind of had an understanding of like, just, I don't know, subcultural stuff, but she um, definitely wouldn't let me travel for shows. And I remember that I went, or I had another friend who kind of like, he didn't kidnap me, but he gave me, the, he facilitated a uh, trip to Warp Tour, which was in Massachusetts. I don't remember where at, at that time. I think it was like, excuse me, 2000, 2001. Um, basically, you know, I like lied to my parents and uh, went with him to Warp Tour and had like an elaborate cover story and stuff. Um, and it would have, I would have gotten away with it, but on the way home, uh, he had this, like, I don't even remember what it was. It was like some kind of weird, like Toyota early eighties sports car. And, uh, we were driving from Massachusetts and we were at like the New Hampshire border and his engine caught on fire, like in, in like a, a spectacular cinematic way. And <laughs> we had to pull over. And like run down the highway because um, yeah, his engine was on fire. So right. because of that, because of that, um, I had to call my mom and have her pick me up in New Hampshire and stuff. And she was fucking pissed. But after oh, that, sure. after that, she kind of just like let me do whatever I want for the rest of high school. Um, and at that warp tour, I saw like Rancid, and AFI, and you know all the all the huge bands of that era. And, really had probably at that point the best day of my life. So it was worth it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, especially too, that's, uh, it's interesting that your mom was like, okay, well, I've, I tried to stop this and, you know, kind of protect this. But now the fact that he's done this, well, you know, the dam is broken and I'll, I'll kind of let him do whatever he needs to, as long as he's being safe about it. Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's really interesting how just being into hardcore and punk has like serendipitously affected my life ever, ever since then. Like it's almost like all good stuff. So. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I think all of us that stay connected to it in some way, shape or form, whether it's obviously playing in bands and music or whether it's just like simply attending shows, I think there's a reason that we do that. It's definitely not just like, Oh yeah, it's a good music. It's, it means yep. much more than just that. Um, yep. And so as you figured out, you know, kind of what 
the quote unquote scene was. And did you immediately get attracted to the idea of like playing in, in bands? And uh, I'm going to presume that guitar was your first instrument. Um, yes. Uh, I played bass first actually. Um, okay. and yeah, I played in like a local punk band called, um, it had two names. It was called social riot squad was the first name. And then squib 655 was the second name. Um, and, and, uh, that's a shift on the second name. there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And this, uh, there's like angel fire websites that I I periodically find, but the MP3s don't work unfortunately, because it'd be insane to listen to that stuff. Um, but yeah, I was playing in bands at, at that point. I didn't do any like, um, high school band type stuff. So I, I mean, I still don't know how to read music or anything, but after that, when I was, that was like pretty punk, like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like casualties level punk probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, there we go. But then, um, as I got more into hardcore, there's like a message board in main X, Ryan X.com. I don't know if you remember that, which was, yeah, I didn't know that that was centered around main, but yeah. Oh oh, yeah. Oh yeah. That was Kingfield main. That was Ryan O from outbreak. Um, original webmaster. Um, but there's a message board and I think through that, like I found some people to play with. Um, but yeah, there was like a, I was in a band when I, I think I was 17 or 18. Um, the drummer was Nate Manning who ended up being in like outbreak and cruel hand. He was 14 at the time. Um, Amazing. <laughs> there was a, the singer Kyle who I don't know what he's doing now. He's, he's up in Kingfield somewhere, but then there's another guitarist who was in, um, been called low life and low life was like kind of the big main hardcore band at the time they uh, it's hard to describe what they sound like they're kind of like hate breed but their songs were like five minutes long uh, Ooh, okay um but like i just remember loving low life and then i was like damn i'm in a band with jay low life this is crazy and uh i remember thinking he was so old and because i was like 17 or 18 but he was probably like 24 or something um which is crazy to think about because I'm now 36, but right. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that band was called never say die. And, um, we toured Canada once, which is pretty cool. Oh, okay. That was, that was it. Did you, did you like, uh, like once you started to travel outside of your city from a show playing perspective, did you immediately like it or was that something you just kind of grew to like over time? Oh yeah, I definitely, I definitely liked it. Um, our, our first tour was like in a minivan and we were in like, it was all places in Canada. I've still never heard of like we played, <laughs> we played Quebec city, but other than that, like it's places I've, I've literally haven't heard of since. Um, but it was fun. Um, and, and yeah, just, I think the traveling aspect of hardcore when you're that age and just like, you can get in a car and like, you know, I know so many people who like tell stories of like, Oh yeah, we we went from like um, DC to Boston in one day to see Planet Mental, and then drove back that night. Which is, you know, I, I don't know how long that drive is—ten hours or something—but yep. it's typical. It's it's just like as I was saying earlier, like hardcore is something at that age you can throw your entire life into, and that can mean driving ten hours on a to go to a show and coming back. You know, yeah, which which is so cool, so great. 
Oh, absolutely. Because you feel like you have this this key that unlocks all of these, you know, magical kingdoms where it's like, oh, there's a reason for me to drive, you know, four hours away to watch a band play to a, in a city that I've never been to. Exactly. Unfortunately, in Maine, um, you would drive four hours north to the middle of nowhere to go to a show. <laughs> so you're not like, you're not going to like some cool new exotic city. You're literally like in the middle of nowhere. Right. At the at the most, you're seeing a, uh, you know, Tim Hortons and that's it. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and so then, you know, as, as you started to play in bands and stuff like that, it, it did, um, and like you mentioned, you obviously got pulled down to the Boston area. Was that because of school or was that just like you figuring out that like, oh, yes, there is something happening here and I'll try to be a part of it? I think both. Like, um I definitely want to go to school in Boston because of hardcore for sure. hundred percent. Um, and I think, yeah, moved to Boston, joined a band. What were, you, what were you studying? Um, I studied graphic design, okay. uh, and I was like completely not engaged in school. Like it was kind of a joke. Um, and the program I went to was also kind of awful. Um, but yeah, like, in Boston, my life was definitely hardcore, and that's what I wanted. So, I I, I do like the idea because I know a lot of kids, especially that are you know really involved in in high school from a you know playing in bands and scene perspective. So many decisions to go to school have been based around like, oh, does this scene like is there a scene here? Like, is there something I can plug into? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the funny thing is at that time shows i guess shows were happening in the city but more so in the suburbs yeah i think massachusetts is always like there's this tension between i mean probably with any scene there's like the city kids and then the suburban kids i think the hardcore i was drawn to in massachusetts was way more of the suburban type which is like the in my eyes 10 yard fight era um yep. while the city city scene maybe even like slightly more like Brockton scene. Um, I, I just remember going to shows at like Bill's bar and those are shows where it's like, Oh, um, you could get beat up here or killed here, which is not killed, but you know, is there more violent shows? And the funny thing is I remember going to Bill's bar shows or Bill's bar shows um, like my freshman year of college. And I was using a coupon from, the college coupon book to get in for free. Um, so you're getting in for free to these shows that like you could very much uh, have your life ended at, which is pretty funny. Right. <laughs> right. You're like, I, I am gaining access to something where I really am going to probably get punched in the face and maybe go yeah. to the hospital. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ne- never did, but easily could have. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But, any, but that's, any that's, but that's kind of the appeal. So mm-hmm. it all works yeah. out. For sure. Um, and so that, you know, I'm not going to hit beat by beat in regards to, uh, you know, half hearts history. Um, but you know, I, I definitely remember once you guys started to, uh, you know, gain some notoriety, especially out here in Southern California. I mean, I definitely remember some early shows at, um, you know, playing random places like studio S in Los Angeles, like that, you, you know, there was just many of these transient venues. Um, but it always did feel like there was this for lack of a better term, like passing of a torch um, from, you know, generations before you of that kind of nod, like, oh, yes, like 
you know, in my eyes, begat Bane, <laughs> begat, you know, have heart. Like you just see kind of the the through line there. Um, did you, I guess, feel that camaraderie in regards to, you know, I mean, I know you guys were all friends collectively together. Did you feel that generalized support, um, you know, as you guys started to play shows and stuff like that? Um, so I didn't join the band until 2005. And right. Pat will be the first to tell you that Half Heart started in like 2000 or 2001 or something. It's like uh, truly like a high school demo band. I, I mean, it, you could say it started in 2001 or whatever, but it didn't really st- start taking off till like 2003, probably. Um, sure. So the first couple of years when they were like grinding, playing VFW halls all over New England, Massachusetts, I was not involved. Um, I just kind of uh, hopped on right as the the rocket ship was taking off, which is you know good timing. But uh, sure. I think. Um, yeah, there was there was camaraderie eventually, I think. I think that initially there's like well Boston's a weird place. I think at some points or certain scenes are very very elitist, kind of like the um um trying to think of bands like it's kind of like the mental righteous jam stop and think stuff that was not welcoming. I would say mm-hmm. like, I think that that's pretty insider jokey um, kind of very uh, not welcoming to outsiders. I think, especially if you're not like checking all the boxes. Um, so I think there was kind of like a weird tension between that stuff and then have heart which was uh coming from the suburbs young kids and as we got bigger we were kind of like um there was a tension in the band itself even where there was like people in the band who were kind of like very purist um punk rock guilt a lot of that um kind of like live wire records first step youth crew but then there were sure. people in the band like such as myself and i think this is kind of like where or how the band kind of got interesting musically and blah 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 uh people like myself and um sean costa who were kind of slightly more outsiders with more uh open music taste like for example like i was raised on like poison the well and like uh Diecast, as I said earlier, right. things right. like that. You allowed metalcore, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. While like Pat and Ryan, like their the first bands they ever heard, first hardcore bands they ever heard were like Minor Threat, and so they were like extremely purist, and they came from Southeast Massachusetts, which was like also very, very much like a punk purist place. So, um, yeah, there's a tension in the band that way, where like there was the purity and the impurity in some ways. Um, But then there was also a tension in Boston in the same way where as we got bigger, we were like, like kind of like an entry level hardcore band in, in like, you know, I think people would call us like pro core at some point. Um, So there was, there was a tension between like us and the purposely obscure kind of elitist, bands but at the same point like i think we came together or 
where we came together musically was with like Bane and In My Eyes because everybody loved those bands. Um, and those those bands were very welcoming. Um, and I think that I I think there was a moment where Sweet Beat was like, yeah, you can you can put Boston Straight Edge on your merch. Like he explicitly said that, which was you know that is explicitly a passing of the torch. So wow, yeah. that that is. A- I honestly, I did not think about it in those sort of really stark terms. Like, not like you guys needed quote unquote permission, but at the same time, like you felt like if you were to do something like that, you know, there, there might be eyebrows raised from a scene perspective, but I appreciate the articulation there. Cause I do think no matter what there is that, um, you know, divergence in local scenes. And then especially once it splinters out to, you know, the national perspective, there's less of a concern for that. But then when you come home, you see it in more stark terms. Yeah, exactly. There was definitely like a a weirdness there. Yeah. I I think eventually as everyone got older, like nobody gives a shit anymore, you know, like fiddleheads unlocking out and there's like, there's literally no issue anymore. and Everybody knows each other. But I think, when everybody's young, there's definitely like uh, the cool kids aspect and then the uh, pathetic losers that we were. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. It's like, yeah, what are these, what are these suburban dorks that are like, you know, really like taking their band quote unquote seriously? Like what the hell? Yeah. I no, yeah. I, I totally get that. Yep. And, and kind of on that same note where, you know, there, there was no, like we were talking about at the very beginning, there was no path for a, a hardcore band to, you know, make a living out of it. But at the same time, there was a uh, sustainability that you could, you know, tour for a prolonged period of time and then be able to maybe cover, a, you know, a month's worth of rent when you got home or whatever. Um, you know, as the band started to kind of grow and even from the idea that like, oh, now we're getting paid, you know, $500 a show to headline or whatever. Uh, you know, how did you guys kind of handle the business aspects as they started to, you know, kind of become not real as like, Oh, let's take this seriously, get a manager and stuff like that. But, you know, how did you, uh, I guess, articulate that internally? Um, I mean, we were a cash business. We, right. (laughs) We we had, we had stacks of cash, we would sometimes deposit it into a bank account. Um, and then after the tour, we would split the cash. Um, no implication of taxes or anything legit. Um, I think um, Carl Hensel at Bridge Nine was always talking about how we should like form an LLC and have write-offs and stuff. But we um, had no concept of that or, or patience or anything. Another thing that is like a huge regret for me personally is that we, you know, flew all over the world. Um, but we never collected a single frequent flyer mile or loyalty point. Um, right. And that, you know, I'm, I'm big on that now. So the fact that we wasted all that, all those miles is kind of crazy to me. Right. <laughs> right. And especially too, where I, I always love that notion of, you know, you're traveling around the country with just this, you know, stupid cash box and just the idea like, hey, um, let do we open up a bit? Who, whose name do we open up a bank account with? Like, how do we navigate this? Oh, yeah. We, yeah, we didn't have a, a band bank account or anything. I think, I don't even remember what happened. I think we, we would, I mean, I remember being in Europe, like the last day of a tour of like a month long European tour. And in Europe, like, 
this is insane. But in Europe, like there's no American ATMs. You can't deposit money. So it's literally like the merch guy just has all the cash from the entire tour, Um, which can be like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of euros, which I don't know. There's a lot of shit that makes zero sense retroactively, but yeah, like, you know, the single merch guy is carrying around the bag of, of everything. Um, But I do remember like the final days of a tour, like we would be at the venue in the back room after our set, just counting money. Um, and it's just like comical cause you have, you know, X amount of cash, which is a lot, a lot of money and you're, it's just stacked all around you and yeah. you're, you're just like, <laughs> okay, like a drug dealer. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're just like, okay, uh, let's split this five ways and everyone gets their cut. And then, and then you come back to America and like try to figure out what to do with these euros. <laughs> yeah you go go to the exchange place at the mall and then there it's like why do you have all of this random you know <laughs> it, it always there's it, it, it is stressful to like be able to figure out what to do with this you know the stressful the i, I use that maybe you know dramatically yeah. but just the idea of like hey okay so how are we handling this money you know who's yeah like you said who's carrying it i guess the merch guy's carrying it yeah <laughs> so much uh, oh yeah it's insane it's um yeah, there's there's definitely an anecdote of uh, our friend Alex. Um, he was playing shipwreck. That he was like, the, I think he, I forget what short was, but he he had all the money and he left it under a table at a restaurant. He left all the money in a restaurant, um, and then like I think he noticed it pretty soon after, like minutes minutes later. Um, but still, it's like I can't imagine the adrenaline dump or whatever you would feel in that moment where you're like, wait, 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 where's, where's the thing? Like in just the shock of it. Um, but he survived and he's doing well now. If he had lost the money, we probably would have killed him. Right. (laughs) No, totally. Yeah. All the responsibility of carrying this singular, uh, item that is, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and yeah that's the, no no one should be responsible for that under the age of 30 and we all oh yeah oh yeah it's it's insane <laughs> yeah um and you know like you mentioned with the you know the dissolution of you know have heart where you guys you know obviously ran out to your logical course from that perspective did you uh, you know, I, I know that you weren't the front and centerpiece in the way that you know pat obviously was from a um you know, frontman perspective, did you have, I guess, problems, you know, exiting the band in regards to like, Oh, like this took up so much of my time. And like, what the heck am I going to do now? Or was it just like, Oh, this is now, this is an exciting, you know, next chapter that I can be a professional human being now. Oh, I was already like, I didn't do the final tours because I was already completely out the door. I was like, got it. Did, did not like touring. I, for some reason I would always get sick. Some people never get sick. Like Pat sleeps five minutes a night is the singer. Um, and just like never gets sick on tour. I would just get sick on tour like every single time. So (laughs) I don't know what's up with my immune system, but, um, that was kind of miserable. And like, I just want to be home. Um, so I was kind of excited for the band to be over, honestly. Um, but retroactively it, looking back, it's like, Oh no, I wish we had kept going, you know, all that stuff. Um, 
Yeah. There's a, I think there's a pretty interesting anecdote as to why we broke up um, or like what set in motion, why we broke up. Um, and it, it, it interestingly ties into like my current life. Uh, okay. And like, so in like 2008, 2009, it, it was kind of like this weird it wasn't weird. It was just like, you know, one year a band's popular, the next year another band's popular. There's waves and there's like movements and there's, um, you know, aesthetic, there's popular aesthetics that happen in hardcore. And so like from like 2006 to 2008-ish, How Far was definitely like on top. Um, but there was also, you know, that's when like Trapped Under Ice came around. Yep. And... Um, there's definitely something very special about that band. Um, I don't know, aesthetically, musically, the personalities involved. And you could kind of tell that there was like a, a um, sea change happening. And um, um, okay, so this, you know, have our broke up in 2009. This is now 2021. I work closely with Sam from Trapped in Rice. Like we work at the same company. And like we, we like, were acquainted at that point, but like not good friends like we are now. Um, and we've, you know, talked all about that era and basically we were on tour with trapped under ice and polar bear club. And it was like a, a just like a interesting weird tour we did. It was like a week long, maybe two weeks. And it was something like Massachusetts to Richmond and Richmond was like the, um, Richmond was United blood. And that that's at that point that was like, the festival um and in 2000 i'm gonna get my years messed up but 2007 let's say i think we had headlined the festival and you know it was like the height of how art like it was it was you know at that point like one of the highlights of being in a band like it was that type of set Mm -hmm. um and then 2008 we were doing this tour from massachusetts down to to united blood um it was it was bands that didn't sound like us. I was psyched on that because um, just the diversity of a tour was cool. Um, and, you know, Trapner is killing it at that point. I forget. I think, I don't think Secrets of the World was even out yet. I think it was like um, Stakehold. I'm not okay. sure. Uh, sure. But um, there was one night where we played in, I believe, Albany um, and we stayed we played a show. I don't remember anything about the show, but I do remember the the night of the show, we stayed at a place. Um, I forget what the dude's name is, but he has like a, a scene name, like, like, like Terry brotherhood or, or I think maybe Dan brotherhood is was his name, but we stayed at like his place. Um, and I remember it being, I remember it differently than Sam does, but I remember it being like a house, but I remember it being like, Basically, it was like we were sleeping outside. It was like dead of winter, um, and it was it was ice cold. It was like you know you could see your breath in in the place we were staying. I remember uh, our drummer Sean didn't have a sleeping bag, so he slept in a soft shell bass drum case, which is <laughs> fucking crazy. And yep. we talk about that all the time. Um, and I just remember this being like a a very infamous. Um, 
night of tour of like lodging. Um, and then now knowing Sam, uh, it turns out that it was also an infamous night of lodging for <laughs> trapped under ice, which is very funny because, you know, it really was like a truly, uh, fork in the road, memorable night because it was just like so uncomfortable. Um, and I remember Sam, I remember Sam snoring so loudly that night. And like, we, we didn't know, we didn't really know any, we didn't know trapped under ice. We knew Jared, I think, but we we're like, Oh, these guys are like, um, intimidating guys. And like, <laughs> sure. um, here's this guy, Sam, just like at that point, he was like a hulking menace. And, uh, he was just like snoring, keeping everyone up. And I remember that night Pat didn't sleep at all, which he, that was pretty normal of him. He just like, can't sleep. But that night he specifically didn't sleep. I think because of that, he was like kind of starting to feel sick. So just like his, his headspace was off. Um, and just like, you know, feeling, feeling strange about life at that point. Um, and I remember we got to United blood and we were like, all right, 2007, this was like an incredible set. It's going to be awesome. Um, trapped under ice plays right before us and they absolutely blow the roof off. Like it's, you know, it's like the coming out of trapped under ice. Like they've, they were already established at this point, but this is like reaffirming that like, Oh yeah, they're on top of the world. Um, or they're about to be anyway. Um, so they play, I think I'm remembering correctly. They play, um, and then half the fest leaves, <laughs> half our plays. And it's like, it's fine, but it's not anywhere close to the year previously. And we were just like, Oh shit. Like, you know, at that point, hardcore did truly go in waves. I think now it's slightly different and bands stick around longer, but we are like, okay, the, uh, the era of half hearts basically over. It's now the era of trapped under ice. I believe we are still in the era of trapped under ice actually. So their era has like not ended, but at that point, <laughs> at that point, Pat was like sick because Sam was snoring and kept him up all night. We had this like weird, like come to Jesus type set. And we were just like, I think after that, we were like, you know what? We should, we should, uh, break up. Um, yeah, we should wind this down. We should wind this down before it gets to be like, oh, you're around way too long. I think we're also all been like disciples of the uh, ten yard fight VHS, whatever that's called. The only way I think, and oh, yeah. in that they talk about like winding it down before you stick around way too long. So I think that really resonated with us. And at the time, we we're just like, you know what? Let's let's wind it down, kind of break up while we're like still sort of doing well, as opposed to you know being one of those bands that sticks around way too long. So, so yeah, there's this like weird chain reaction of events that includes, uh, Sam, who I work with now, um, (laughs) yeah, that really led to directly us breaking up. And I didn't, we didn't know that until years later. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it it is, I, I appreciate that story because I do think it is, especially when you can retroactively look at it and kind of pinpoint like, Oh yes, it started to feel different around this particular time or this show or whatever. Cause I I do think that most people do have to reckon with that idea where it's like, okay, maybe the band could exist in some different form, but we can't do it the way we have been doing it. And I think that that was that, you know, that's a testament to you guys being like, Oh, okay. Like, yeah, we're (laughs) this, this is the time. This is the place. Now we need to shift out of this. Yeah. It really was like a, a moment. Yeah, for sure. 
And so, like you mentioned, you were doing, um, and, and just two last things I want to hit on, like you mentioned the, you know, you were working in design that you were pursuing that and you, you know, you've been obviously very consistent in that. Um, you know, so what, um, you know, have you just kind of like worked at agencies or doing freelance stuff? Um, because I know that you do a visual medium, but that you also obviously have the, um, you know, the coding design abilities as yep. well. Yeah. Um, so when Havar broke up, I moved to New York City and lived there for about eight years. Um, and there, kind of all, like every little, every professional um, success or professional opportunity I've had has come through hardcore. And the first um, job I was able to get was through my roommate at the time, um, Sean, who used to play in the Mongoloids. He was like a, he worked at um, Universal making like Lil Wayne's MySpace page and stuff. And he was like, oh yeah, like I can get you a job, like no problem. And at that point I knew literally nothing. Um, and so he, he hooked me up with uh, Chris, my friend Chris, who um, at that point he was in um, Suburban Scum. He was the base of Suburban Scum in like 2009. And he was running like the tech at this like really small agency and he was like okay you're hired even though i literally knew nothing at that point it was amazing but but through hardcore it's like okay you're hired and then from that it just like continued to roll into opportunity after opportunity and it's all traces back to uh hardcore <laughs> and i i mean i'm i'm stoked that that happens because i do think it is especially now that the generalized you know punk and hardcore scene has existed for long enough to be you know over generations and how people have been able to grow up with that uh aesthetic uh, know-how and then bring it over into the world of you know corporate or commercial design and you know i mean it's like yes on one hand it sucks because of the commodification of it but at the same time it's like hey if people are bringing good design principles over like that's that's a good thing like <laughs> we shouldn't yeah. be so precious about that yep yeah um and i i now work in tech specifically financial tech um and uh i work with like you know sam who's in tui and diamond youth i work with uh this guy Derek, who was in um, Spirit of the Beehive. Um, oh, nice. Who else? Oh, uh, George, who he was in Shipwreck. He was the basis of a Shipwreck at certain points. So, like, I don't know. Just hiring through personal networks, you know, trying to get additional punk and hardcore people into the company. It's cool. Yeah, yeah no, it's really cool. Um, the... It, obviously much has been spoken about in regards to, you know, when you guys did the reunion shows and the, uh, you know, how large the shows were and how much people paid attention to it. And I know it was overwhelming for you guys because, um, you know, I knew you knew the shows would be quote unquote good, but I, I don't think anybody anticipated <laughs> what they actually came to be. Um, and that kind of goes back to what you were saying in regards to the, um, you know, the exit of the band as it were, where you were, you know, going out, not in a trickle, but uh, making sure that there was thought process behind it. Yep. As you kind of did these shows, what was the most, um, I guess, either overwhelming or surprising aspect beyond just the simple, you know, attendance of like, oh, wow, we got, you know, 4,000 people in a parking lot in Worcester, you know, like, that's weird. What was that? Uh, yeah. 
What kind of stood out to you? Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's hard to think of something other than just the sheer magnitude of it because sure, that that's fair. that really is the like holy shit. Um, especially the Worcester parking lot show is uh, I think I personally like there's a lot of personalities in the band and a lot of different um, ways of thinking. And there's some people in the band who have like um, more like pessimistic mindset and some people who are like more optimistic. I tend to be more optimistic and I was like, Oh yeah, the shows are going to be great. Um, but I remember hitting up Vitalo, uh and I was like, man, the Palladium holds like 2,500 people. I don't know if we can do that. I, I knew like every other show, I knew LA would be good and I knew Europe would be good, but I was like, oh man, Massachusetts, like Palladium, like place holds 2,500 people. Do you think we can sell it out? And he was like, dude, of course. Um, and so I was like, okay, if you, if you say so. Um, and then when the tickets went on sale, yeah, I mean, it was you're crazy. Like what? What? <laughs> yeah, you're like, this, yeah, really? Okay, they, they sold out. Right, sold out immediately. Oh, well, and honestly, like I think watching what you guys were able to put together in regards to how you were portraying yourself, like, and, and I know that sounds very calculated, but just like it would have been real simple for you guys to exist as you had back then, where it's just like, oh, here we go, but there was so much more involved with it. And I think the, you know, even though it wasn't like this, you know, huge grand steps that you were making, but, you know, you were making statements in regards to, you know, a portion of the proceeds going to nonprofits and, you know, the banner that you guys had behind you. Um, I, I'm sure were, I, I guess, were people surprised that there was that element of it? Or did it obviously just like make sense overall where it's like, oh, yes, of course, we're going to do this because it's not just like, you know, a simple reunion show or whatever. Um. I think it made sense. I think um, even our last show uh, was a benefit for Women's Shelter, um, which Pat's mom uh, worked for or ran for a long time. Um, so I think there was always kind of an element of that in the band. And I think it just, you know, it just made sense to continue that. Yeah, for sure. It's like yeah. the, <clears throat> especially too, with just the idea that this was a further evolution of, like, okay, now that we have a, a little bit larger megaphone than we did in, you know, 2008, like now we can just yep. use this for a greater good. So, yeah, I think we had planned that before the shows had happened. Um, and yeah, we weren't expecting that, that level of megaphone. I also do think that it really truly was like an absolute surprise. Like we kept it pretty tight and nobody knew that was happening. Um, yeah. And we announced it and tickets went on sale pretty quickly. So it truly was like a, there were no rumors or anything, you know, it was like, all right, it's happening. Here's the tickets. And I think that added kind of to the mania of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the last thing I want to hit on was the idea that, I mean, clearly you are still connected and active within you not only, you know, punk and hardcore, but you know, like dark blue and obviously the new, new band that you play in, um, is it just the kind of the connective tissue that you still feel within the context of independent music that keeps you attached? Cause I know as you get older um, speaking as old human myself, it, it takes more effort to, you know, stay involved. Um, it's not as easy because we obviously yep. don't have as much time as we did when we were 19 or 20. Um, so what kind of keeps you, I guess, going back to the well? 
I think that um, when you're when I was first getting into hardcore, uh, there was the concept of like the hardcore dropout, and it was like a a, a trope, a stereotype. Um, I think that in the modern era, to be a hardcore dropout is like a lot of effort because it's actually really easy at this point to stay connected and and see what's going on in hardcore. Like at one point, it's like you had to do real work to stay connected and be in touch, go to shows, see what 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 new music was coming out. But now it's like it's actually very easy. Um, so I would say for me, uh, it's not that much effort to stay connected. And if, if I wanted to disconnect, it would be like a concerted effort. Um, and, you know, I think with a lot of people who are into hardcore, even as a 36 year old, so much of your life um, springs from it. Like just the people, you know, um, where you are in life, what you're into, what, what decisions you've made in life. Like it all can be traced back to hardcore for a lot of people. And for me, I don't know, you know, some huge percentage of people I know that I'm friends with, I know from hardcore. So it's, right. um, it's just, it's just uh, part of you at some point. Yeah, no, that's true. Especially. Yeah. After a certain, I, I think I've uh, not scientifically measured it, but I think once you've been involved for over seven years, it definitely, you are one person removed from everybody. <laughs> in music and it's like oh yeah. yeah well this is just kind of you know i know as cheesy as it sounds like my tribe and like that's who i'm yep. gonna know yeah i think like what's the ignite song where um zoli's talking about like uh people dropping out hardcore and being becoming like a dj or something um i feel like that can happen now but the dj would would still be involved in hardcore like you know you no longer like cut the cord because it's, I don't know. I think hardcore is more welcoming and accepting of stuff now, anyway. But it's it's hard to drop out. It's just hard. It takes yeah, a lot of effort. No, that's true. Especially with like you can't exist kind of you know in two separate lanes because you know a person doesn't need to be like one thing or the other. It's like they can be both, and that's the human experience in general. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, Kay, thank you so much for hanging out. I honestly really appreciate you being uh, so thoughtful in your responses. Yeah, man. It was fun. Thank you very much, Kay, for appearing on the show and hanging out and uh, having some really thoughtful and introspective answers to the questions I posed to you. You know, that's how these interviews should go, and uh, that's exactly what happened. So if you have been living under a rock and you have not listened to Have Heart, listen to Have Heart, but then also listen to Dark Blue. Really, really cool. And that's removing the vowels. That's D-R-K-B-L-U. You can find them uh, wherever you stream music. But uh, yeah, that's that's what he's got going on. And he also has a lot of other cool stuff going on. So you can just Google his name and you'll be able to find his website. does a lot of really cool Web design, graphic design, all that sort of stuff. All the designs. <laughs> Next week is what I like to call my most favorite time of the year. And that is the best of 2021 episode where I gather up my friends Joey Cahill from 61301 Records and now of the Wanna Hear It Records record store, as well as Jeremy Bohm from Touche More, Hesitation Wounds, Secret Voice Records, all the things that he does. And we, we Voltron it together and we talk about our favorite records of the year. It's always a really fun time. And this episode, it, it continues in the storied tradition. <laughs> 
So that's what we got next week. And until then, please be safe, everybody.